Professor Chen, uh, Mrs. Chen, ladies and gentlemen, your excellencies, it's a great pleasure for me to welcome you to this year's inaugural lecture for the Philip Roman Chair in History and International Affairs based in LSE Ideas. Uh, my name is Arno Westad. I'm uh, one of the directors of the LSE Ideas Center with Professor Michael Cox, who is in attendance here tonight. It is a special privilege for me uh, to welcome Professor Chen Jen to the LSE as Philip Roman Professor. Professor Chen is widely recognized as the world's foremost expert on the history of recent Chinese foreign affairs. Um, to the point, and I'd like to note this, according to the president of Cornell University, where Professor Chen is currently uh, working, that when they wanted to fill the new chair in this particular field, the recruitment strategy that Cornell had consisted of three words, get Chen Jen. Now, whether or not this is connected to Cornell's recruitment strategy, I can also report that Professor Chen is a magnificent singer of Chinese folk songs. And, as I know personally and all too well, he plays a mean hand of table tennis. In other words, he's someone who will fit in as hand in glove within LSE Ideas, for those of you who know a little bit about what that center is up to. Professor Chen has published a number of books, but what is really unique about him is the impact that he's had within the field through his books. I know of no other historian working on international history today who published two books that have really turned the fields that they have dealt with upside down in terms of interpretation. Uh, the first book, probably still the most influential book that Professor Chen has contributed, uh, is called China's Road to the Korean War. And in that book that was published in 1993, um, he really took the whole story of the Korean War as we thought we knew it earlier on and literally turned it upside down in terms of explaining the reasons for why China got involved in its conflict with the United States in the first place, what kind of strategic thinking that was behind the decision to involve itself in Korea. And what Professor Chun said is that this was not really about strategy or interests. It was not about the way the world uh, had developed since the Second World War. It was not even primarily about the Sino-Soviet alliance. It was about ideas and about a sense of cohesion between the North Korean communists and the Chinese government. That is what really mattered. And therefore, the idea that China would have been able to stand outside the Korean conflict was a very far-fetched one indeed. Very different from what the story had been earlier on. And of course, he backed this up with documents from the Chinese side that no one else had had access to before. And he followed this up a few years later with a book called Mao's China and the Cold War, where he also turned upside down on all of China's involvement during the Cold War era, not just in terms of the early phase in the 50s and 60s, but also the background for what really became a kind of Sino-American pseudo-alliance during the 1970s and, and 19, early 1980s. And he explained this in a very different way from what had happened before. Again, his emphasis was very much on ideas and on culture and on political um, strategies on the, on the Chinese side, emphasizing that this was not an ideological calculation. Quite on the contrary, it was intended on the Chinese side, on the side of Mao Zedong, as a way of saving his revolution rather than trying to develop it in any way in the direction that the Americans wanted to see. So two books that have made a tremendous impact on the field. And that is the reason why we are so happy to, to welcome uh, uh, Chen Jian as uh, Philip Roman professor from this year. I don't think 
we could have got a better person in terms of his impact on understanding China's foreign affairs uh, than Professor Chen. We're very, very happy to have him here. The number of people I would like to thank in connection with the uh, inaugural for this year's Philip Roman Chair. First and foremost, uh, Mr. Emmanuel Roman, who is in the audience today, who uh, set up this chair uh, in the name of his late father. And without Emmanuel's support, of course, we would not all be here tonight. I also want to thank Howard Davis, the director of the LSE and the team that he's working with, for helping us making this chair a reality and for helping us develop LSE ideas, the center in which um, the chair is based. And then finally, I want to thank the students and the staff of LSE Ideas, who are the ones who really make the center uh, and make it such an exciting place to be. And I hope that with Professor Chen Jun with us for the next year, in terms of what goes on, not just with regard to East Asia, but also with regard to all, on the, all other things, including singing and table tennis playing, it will make it an even more exciting place than it's been over the last year since we got it started up. It is a great pleasure for me, Chen Yen, to welcome you here, both in, with regard to uh, the LSE involvement in it, but also in personal terms. Um, we've been friends for a very long time, and it's a great, great pleasure for me to introduce you as Philip Roman Chair for the academic year 2008-2009. Thank you, Professor Westhardt. I do not know how to follow you. This certainly is a marvelous introduction to the greatest surprise of myself. And now I do not know if I may live up to the standard you have established, especially since I can neither sing nor play ping pong <laughs> in front of this audience. Although Ping pong will be part of my speech today because there's something called ping pong diplomacy, which is part of the turning point, one of the most important turning points in 20th century history that I will try to build into my speech today. It is both a great pleasure and also privilege for me to stand in front of this distinguished audience to share with you about how I try to understand from a historian's perspective the so-called China challenge. Of course, there are so many problems facing today's world. I think I come to London at time there's no need for me to emphasize the word problem of crisis. Still, if we try to understand how the world today has been shaped and to what extent that our strategies and approaches toward building a better world are to be we must talk about China. Few countries, if any, have experienced such dramatic changes and transformations as does China in the past 30 years. 
from a revolutionary country, an outsider of the existing international system, to a kind of status quo power. That is by itself already an extraordinary process of historical development. But the story of China involves much more. In the past three decades, the Chinese economy has developed at such a speed. Indeed, from 1978 to 2008, in a 30-year period, China has maintained a, an annual growth rate on average 10.4%. This is not one year. This is not two years. This is not 10 years. It is for a period of 30 years. In terms of gross national product, the level that China reached in 2007 was 68 times of that of a standard of 1978 when the so-called reform and the opening era was unfolded. In terms of per capita income in China, in the 30-year period, a Chinese was earning 59 times in 2007 of the level of 1978. All of this is of no parallel in world history, as far as I can know. Not Britain of the Victorian age, not the United States in the shaping stage of American history, not in the history of the four little dragons, not in the process when the so-called Japanese miracle was created. This is a unique China story. In world history, economic development for one country at a such a speed has inevitably caused all kinds of speculations, all kinds of worries, and all kinds of expectations. And this is not just a normal country. This is China, a country with the largest population in the world, and the country with one of the longest and certainly most continuous civilizations in the world. This is also a country which, during historical period, regarded itself not as a civilization among civilizations. It called itself Zhongguo or Central Kingdom. Or in other words, China was not anything. It was everything. It was the civilization in total. In the 19th and 20th century, the world and also the world history 
have been dominated by wars, revolutions, crises. The Great War, the Second World War, the Cold War. And each and every episode of the world history of the 19th and 20th century cannot be fully understood without a comprehension of China's position in it. Therefore, it is understandable that China's rapid growth will cause worries among many, especially because in world history we have seen so many cases when the rapid change of one actor's status will bring about requirements for redistribution of wealth and power such causing disorder in the entire international system. So, not surprising at all, in the past 30 years, yet especially since the early 1990s, we have heard so many claims from different perspectives about the so-called China threat. And the notion of the China threat has been greatly enhanced also because China is such an actor. Even after the end of the global Cold War, after the collapse of the former Soviet Union, after the dismantling of the international communist movement after the failure of international communism as a 20th century phenomenon. After communism is no longer presenting itself as an alternative to liberal capitalism as a possible, possible alternative toward modernity. China still is ruled by a party which called itself the Chinese Communist Party. Although I do believe there are differences between communism and fascism, but I feel I cannot completely blame my students, my American students, when they cannot make distinction between Hitler and Lenin and when they think that Hitler actually is a Communist Party member and Stalin was a member of the National Socialist Party. Because both share the character that is known as totalitarianism. And China is still ruled by this party. And China is developing at such an extraordinary speed in its economic growth. How can we fail to worry about this China? Furthermore, I'm from the United States of America, and actually, I am also an American citizen. So I must say something about my fellow Americans. 
we Americans are very good at many things. But overwhelming majority of my fellow Americans are not good at learning foreign language. And foreign language actually is a key toward the understanding of foreign cultures, at least a qualified understanding of foreign cultures. And so many of my fellow Americans still perceive China not just as a communist country, because at least communism is something related to modernity. They're thinking about China in terms of foot binding, concubines, and also Empress Dowager Fuxi. When they think about China, they think about the typical Chinese dishes offered in Hunan restaurant called a chop. They think that Chinese were very good at doing laundry business, or offering coolie. They cannot understand how a China basically with by these people can create a model of modernity. But suddenly they find they will have to deal with China with a capacity that is so dramatic. Even in some predictions, people say by the year as early as 2032, China will replace the United States to become the world's number one economic giant. We are worried. It's very easy, therefore, for the notion of the so-called China threat to spread. And it's also very easy for misperceptions and associated with misperceptions. Mistaken design of grand strategies to deal with the so-called China threat to emerge. In the worst cases, we have seen books entitled such as The Coming War with China. On the other hand, we have seen books based upon wishful thinking entitled The Coming Collapse of China. Also, we have witnessed strategic proposals that it was based that were based upon what during the Cold War period the United States had adopted toward the former Soviet Union that were characterized by containment or at least constrainment. The question is to what what extent from at least from a historian's perspective, will those perceptions and as a result, the strategic proposals based upon those perceptions prove to be 
correct. I'm here today not to completely try to completely undermine those perceptions and those strategic designs. Because no matter to what extent from my historian's perspective, some of those notions are so absurd in one way or another. There is a certain degree of truth there. Indeed, China today is a country that is dominated by a party that calls itself the Chinese Communist Party. Indeed, China's economic development has caused imbalances in the international current status of international distribution of balance of power. And also, it cannot be more true to emphasize that China's rise as a global power in the 21st century has created, among other things, a series of cultural challenges to the rest of the world, and especially for Americans, especially for American college students. That presents such a challenge for the two, their language learning needs. They now will have to learn, or at least many of them now will have to learn what they call the damn Chinese language. <laughs> Having said this, I must say that China threat is a completely unsound notion, especially in face of the grand transformation of a population of a country that composed one-fifth of the world's population and also continuously the Chinese economy and also accompany the Chinese economy, Chinese society, and also underlying the Chinese economy and Chinese society, Chinese culture, have been transformed to such a degree, there must be something that are deep, are extremely meaningful for us to learn. Also, I must emphasize, as a China scholar, what I have seen is that in an age that China has opened to the rest of the world, China is increasingly becoming a part of the world. Interestingly, the decisive driving force for China's changes were not from outside. They are from in side. Any notion that I have seen, any strategic proposal that I have seen for trying to influence China, either by detaining it or by restraining it or by reshaping it, actually are at such a level. They are 
based upon the assumption that it is possible for inviting a barber to conduct a very complicated brain surgery. I will argue that the problems that have been likely to bring about by China's changes and are basically a China challenge rather than a China threat. A China challenge is one that both the Chinese and the people in the other parts of the world must work together to try to find informative solutions. And a China threat will cause, among other things, the worst possible security scare on the part of the Chinese. China today certainly is not an enemy of the West. It is the China threat notion that is most possible to change China into an enemy of the rest of the world. This is something definitely we should try to avoid. How does this so-called China threat, China threat and the China challenge notions come into being? In order to understand this question, we must go back to history. I'm a historian. Again, China is the country with one of the longest and certainly one of the most continuous civilizations in the world. However, in modern times, China's history from a Chinese perspective was dominated by a profound sense of humiliation created by the Japanese Western and Western incursions of China. All of this has caused a very unique victim mentality on the part of the Chinese. While in modern world history, there are many cases about victim mentality, including those related to nationhood and statehood. But the Chinese victim mentality was unique, was powerful, because it formed such a sharp contrast with the age-old Chinese notion of China being the center of the world. Therefore, when different forces in China, the communists and the nationalists, tried to gather together to form plans for, for transforming China, revolutionary nationalism, with the support of the Chinese victim mentality, has always been standing at the core of providing legitimacy to any possible solutions to China's problems. In 1949, when the People's Republic, Republic of China was established, Chairman Mao stood atop the gate of a heavenly peace, and he made probably if not one of the most important, I will argue, probably the most important statement that has been made ever by a world leader. 
he announced to the whole world, we, the Chinese people, have stood up. In retrospect, it was this statement that provided the Chinese communist state with the legitimacy for its political and societal revolutionary transformation programs under Mao. Even when China experienced such disastrous events as the Great Leap Forward or the Great Proletarian Revolution, Mao's revolution sustained. China under Mao was a revolutionary country. It challenged the existing international orders and international codes of behavior, which the Chinese revolutionaries believed to be of Western origin, and they were not conducive to the Chinese revolutionary course. Against that background, the West, the capitalist West, with the United States as a leader, was involved in hot wars in East Asia. Indeed, the only hot wars the United States was involved during the Cold War period all occurred in East Asia, namely in Korea and even in Vietnam. In both cases, containing Chinese communist expansionist plots or conspiracies were behind policy makers' logical thinking. For policy makers and military planners in Washington in the 1950s and 1960s, they believed that communist China was not the most powerful challenge to U.S. strategic interests. However, China was a more daring, therefore more dangerous enemy. This led to America's involvement in the so-called longest war in American history. However, it was interesting to note that when the Chinese-American confrontation reached low ebb in the late 1960s, suddenly something dramatic occurred. Now I must mention ping-pong play. That was in spring 1971 in a Japanese city called Nagoya, where the 31st World Table Tennis Championships was held. One American ping pong player, a very unorderly, without self-discipline, 19-year-old college student, mistakenly boarded a shuttle bus of the Chinese players. And suddenly he found that he himself was in the middle of the central stage of making of world history because he encountered the Chinese players. This led to, very quickly, Chairman Mao's decision to invite the American table tennis team to visit China, where they played ping pong with the Chinese. And where, interestingly, all the Chinese were the best ping-pong players in the world, 
but they gave the Americans a face. They never beat the Americans in team match 9-0. It's always 6-3, 5-4. The Chinese were winning, but not to the extent to shame the Americans. In another few months, there's a very smart man whose name is Henry Kissinger, the special national security uh, advisor to President Nixon, who found himself in Beijing to shake hands with Premier Zhou Enlai. They jointly worked out the arrangement for, in a few months, President Nixon himself to visit China. And Nixon was in a very cold February day in 1972 in Beijing, shaking hands with the ailing and aging Chairman Mao in Beijing's forbidden city. This was the famous Chinese-American rapprochement. I'm not here today to describe to you the whole process and meanings of the Chinese-American rapprochement. I just want to highlight two points which are still relevant to our understanding of the China challenge in the 21st century. First, I would like to emphasize that the way in which Nixon's trip to Beijing was managed was a highly symbolic, especially in terms of how the Chinese will be treated as Americans' equals. Zhou Enlai particularly instructed the Chinese photographer that he must take the photo that would reflect the essence of Nixon's visit. And therefore, this very experienced Chinese photographer took great effort to think what actually is the essence of the visit. And he made this photo in which President Nixon was stepping down from the tarmacs of his Air Force One, and he was extending his hands forward. And Premier Zhong Lai was standing there sturdy, receiving President Nixon. So it was not the Chinese, it was the Americans who were in need of the Chinese friendship and a strategic partnership. In a deeper level, because as a historian, I do pay attention to those symbolic expressions, but I also believe there are more substantial things always behind or underlying the symbolic expressions. More importantly, During the Korean War period, and especially during the Vietnam War period, China and the United States virtually were in war status. Even during the Vietnam War, now we know from 1965 to 1969, altogether 320,000 Chinese combat troops or persons were in, on, in the, on the territory of North Vietnam. They took over the tasks of air defense so that the young men of North Vietnam could be sent to the South to fight the Americans. 
and the peak year of the Chinese military presence in the Vietnam War was 1967-1968, during which year altogether 170,000 Chinese troops were in Vietnam. During these two wars, the Chinese-American confrontation was brought to a very fierce stage. But what was the motives behind Mao's decision on Chinese intervention? American hostility toward the Chinese communists certainly was one interpretation, but that is not a sufficient interpretation for Mao compared with American hostility. It was American contempt of the Chinese, American disdain of China. The American perception of not taking China as a qualified challenger to the United States, those were the factors that made Mao and his comrades angry. Interestingly, these were the same factors that caused the great Sino-Soviet split. And why are those questions so important? Let's go back to Mao's grand statement. We, the Chinese people, have stood up. Although Mao's revolution was designed according to the chairman's own description to create a, in China a land of universal justice and equality and prosperity. The Chinese Communist Revolution miserably, miserably failed people's test in terms of those tasks. But whenever Mao and his comrades and his successors were in need of justifying the Chinese Communist Revolution and Chinese Communist State, they will go back to Mao's grand statement. We, the Chinese people, have stood up. This is both a huge legitimacy challenge to the Chinese Communist Revolution, especially it was made anything but communist. And this is also a huge legitimacy justification for the Chinese state that was created by the Chinese Communist Revolution. The Chinese American rapprochement opened a new door toward. both the global Cold War history and also China's own modern history. The Chinese-American rapprochement completely undermined the international communists' effort to make a communism as an alternative to liberal capitalism as a mainstream force path toward modernity. It actually made 
The Cold War's end with the collapse of a Soviet Union and Soviet camp and international communism inevitable. But more importantly, what will live beyond the end of the Cold War is China's own grand transformation. Chairman Mao died on September the 9th, 1976. In two short years, one very short man, namely named Deng Xiaoping, who was twice purged by Chairman Mao during the Cultural Revolution, climbed to the paramount leader's position of China. And he launched in China in the late 1970s the reform and opening process. The reform and opening process is first and foremost a de-revolutionization process, which is most clearly reflected in Deng Xiaoping's famous statement about his cat theory. Deng Xiaoping says, black cat, white cat, so long as it's a cat that catches mouse, it's a good cat. So, in actual political sense, that means capitalism, socialism, as long as it promotes China's modernization, it should be a goodism. Since late 1970s, China has experienced what I will name, and I believe my dear friend, Professor Westhard, will also name as so-called the great transformation of China and also of the world. China's transformation occurred in five main areas. The first I have mentioned is a complete change of trend of economic development. Under Mao, Chinese economy developed. But there are so many intervals and also there are so many reversals. However, since the late 1970s, Chinese economy has developed, has increased, has grown in such a way that it has astonished any economist and any historian who have knowledge of world history. Related to economic changes, the growth with the changes in the second area, the transformation of economic structure. What emerged in China is this magical concept word of phenomenon that is known as market. The Soviet-style planning economy was completely undermined. It was replaced by what is known as the socialist market-oriented economy. If there are good patterns of that economy, at one point they were existing in UK, Northern Europe, 
and many other European countries. And now, we are facing a test concerning to what extent those socialist market-oriented economy will work. And maybe China can provide some useful and enlightening answers to that question. And related to the transformation of the structure of Chinese economy with the emergence of the central concept market is the is greater changes in Chinese legal areas. Two concepts, central concepts, that have been suppressed by communist practice in China were shaped and re-emerged in China at a speed and magnitude that was unsinkable in the Maoist area. These concepts are property ownership, and credit. They are so important because they completely changed the boundary between private and public, and also they completely changed what should be regarded as the most sacred in human life. The fourth area of great transformation were related to the first three areas of transformation. That was societal changes. During the early years of the reform and opening, two important components of Maoist societies were abolished. That is the household registration system in the cities, which bind people to their um, uh, um, own residence, making it impossible for people to have any kind of mobility movement and the people's commune systems in the countryside. And with the further transformation of China, new middle classes emerged in China. And in Chinese terms, I must say, since 19, the late 1970s, China has witnessed the shaping of a society that is more plural, more active than any period in Chinese history. And with the continuous development of that trend, it is likely that China is to create a plural society that is both unique and also meaningful, even on global scale. And finally, all of those domestic changes accompany China's changing status in the international community. China's definition and perception of its own position in the world, and also China's interactive relationships with the rest of the world. Most important is that China has changed from a revolutionary power to a status quo power. China has changed from an outsider of the existing international system increasingly into an insider of the existing international system. 
And that crucial change occurred, I will argue, in the late 1990s. And two events were central in defining China's new position in the world. One is China's joining of WTO. That means China was accepting the widely accepted international norms and, and codes of behavior, as its own norms and codes of behavior. Another one was China's strategies and approaches toward the 1997 Asian financial crisis. That was the time many analysts in the West believed that China should be regarded as a responsible actor in the international community. And I think memory of that period of history is extremely important for today when the world is facing another global financial crisis on a magnitude uh, depth much, much bigger than the 1997 crisis. What China will do, what China can do, will really change the world's answers to the current financial crisis that we are facing. And having said all of this, the China story has another aspect. The China challenge were not just opportunities, they are real problems. So what are the problems? First of all, we the Chinese people have stood up, have provided legitimacy justification to the Chinese communist state. But when the Chinese communist state is anything but communist, you will find that there is a huge gap between we the Chinese have stood up and China's political and societal realities today. So there is a very profound legitimacy crisis facing the Chinese communist state or so-called Chinese communist state. When Chinese economy and Chinese society are rapidly changing, how and when, what ways China's political institutions will transform in ways that will justify the continuous economic and societal change is a very big question facing the, both the Chinese leadership and the Chinese people. And the first and foremost, this is a question that the Chinese people will have to answer. There are other problems. When China's economic development has changed the society, it also has completely undermined the Maoist egalitarian reality. Chinese society today is more divided than ever before between rich and the poor, between urban and rural, between coastal and inner land areas. Further, China's development has occurred at an age that global awareness of preservation environmental protection had reached such an stage. Let me just give you a very simple description. China's economic size today is about one quarter of that of the United States. And China's energy consumption is about 90% of that of the United States, which means that China's 
energy use efficiency is three times lower than that of the United States. I realize my time, and I would like to leave some time for questioning and answering. Therefore, let me try to conclude my speech by bringing you to one site in Beijing, in the suburb of Beijing. I believe that is the site where all of China's achievements and problems are epitomized in a location where history, China's glorious past, revolutions, legacies of revolutions, and also modernity. Somehow encountered a met together. Of course, Beijing is such a wonderful city. It is there. The Olympics were held. I think quite successfully. No matter to what extent people may criticize what the Chinese government have done to make it a success. And also it has set up, set up such a challenge for London. Especially, I don't think some London municipality is able to restrict traffic volume as did the government in Beijing. And Beijing is wonderful. And that is not because it is site of the Chinese Revolution. That is also because it is the site of Chinese culture and history. People are so familiar with Tiananmen Square. Tiananmen, the Gate of Heavenly Peace, was first constructed in the year 1420 as the entrance to the Forbidden City, the imperial palace of the Ming and the Qing dynasty. So it's history. It was also the symbol of the Chinese Revolution. When Chairman Mao stood atop this Gate of Heavenly Peace, which is the English translation of Tiananmen. He revealed millions and millions of revolutionary Chinese. And actually, on November the 25th, 1966, I was one among a million to walk through in front of Tiananmen Square, and I saw Chairman Mao there. So it was the symbol of the Chinese Revolution. On the Tiananmen Square, you also see the monument of people's heroes, the Great Hall of the People, the Museum of Chinese Revolutionary History. Everything trying to remind the people of the legacies of the Chinese Revolution. If that was not enough, just go to Tiananmen Square on a normal working day at sun rising time, 
you will find the ceremony for raising the national flag. That is a daily reminder of people that the Chinese Revolution still matters. But there are other things that are happening surrounding Tiananmen. There's the so-called National Theater. Egg's Shell is its name, which stands next to the Great Hall of the People. And that is a postmodernist structure which reminds people of China entering not just the 21st century, but also probably looking into the centuries far beyond the 21st. That is not enough. You probably should go to the other side of Tiananmen Square, where you will find three things which remind you of the complicity of China's existence in today's world. The so-called largest Kentucky Fried Chicken in the world. <laughs> McDonald's. And of course, three Starbucks. <laughs> this is China. And this is a complicity of the China challenge. It combines such a long historical span jumping from the past to the recent past to the present and with the prospect of the future. I do not believe that my by now 45, 50 minute speech will provide sufficient answer to the question about how the China challenge should be defined and should be answered. My hope is that if my speech can provide a point of departure toward a pursuit of proper answers. And then I feel my mission is more than fulfilled. Thank you. Thank you so much, Professor Chen, for that grand tour of Chinese history and how it links up to the Chinese presence, and particularly in terms of symbols, the kinds of links between culture and politics that you've dealt with in your own career, uh, in terms of your writing, both, I should say, in, in Chinese and in, in English, because Professor Chen is not just one of those who is listened to in the United States uh, and increasingly in Europe with regard to China's international affairs. He's also to a very, very high extent listened to in Beijing, at least up to the tolerance level of the present government um, in terms of your publications there. Now, I wanted to open up for uh, questions, but I wanted to start with one for you, Chen Jian, that I, I, I wondered if you could answer straight away, just as others prepare um, their questions. We have about 20 minutes or so for, for Q&A. Um, you described Tiananmen, which is indeed a, a very striking, uh, although in its present form, recently created square 
uh, within the center of, of Beijing. But of course, I mean, this is a square that has been used for many different purposes. It's been used for grand buildings. It's been used for revolutionary marches organized by the, by the state. It was the place where you first set eye on Chairman Mao. Whether he saw you, I think, is a little bit more uncertain among the million <laughs> that was there. I, I, let, us, let us say that he did. He probably did. I mean, the one who would mean more for his reputation, uh, at least as far as international affairs goes, than almost anyone else. He ought to have spotted you. But it's, it's also been a center for protest. It's also been a center for um, trying to turn around uh, the uh, oppression that has come through the Chinese state at various levels. I mean, starting well before the present square was actually created in the early part of the 20th century, as, as you know full well. And I was wondering, in terms of that duality, uh, in terms of the events of 1919 and in terms of the events of 1989 and, and so on, in the symbolic center of China. What could you tell us in terms of looking a little bit into the future of how the Chinese state will be able, in terms of the legitimacy problems that you mentioned, to deal with these forms of organized dissent? Well, it seems to me that in terms of China's international reputation at the moment, this is one of its biggest challenges. A lot of things the present government has indeed been able to do well, um, and you, you cited a few of them. You also cited some of its failures. But the most spectacular failure to me seems to have been the inability to deal with forms of organized dissent within the PRC. Do you see that changing in the immediate future? There are different ways. Thank you. This is an excellent question. And uh, as intellectuals, we know how important free voices are. And actually, intellectuals are created not for serving the interests of government or the state, but for presenting independent viewpoints that will benefit history and society and the entire human race and population. So this is so important. Okay, let me take three different perspectives in terms of responding to the question. First, you know, I grew up in Mao's China. I still remember the days when I myself was defined as a dissident student during the later stage of Cultural Revolution, I was twice put into jail. Those days, I hope, are over and over forever. Today in China, I can no longer see in my memory there was such an event. You know, in, late, in the Cultural Revolution, a friend of mine, after painting a Chairman Mao's picture, went to the restroom and he forgot that he should not use the newspaper as a winding paper because bathroom tissue was not offered in China. And he used that newspaper. And unfortunately, there was Chairman Mao's picture. And he was, he was identified as a reactionary and he was sentenced to seven years in prison just for doing that very unfortunate toilet White. trip. And that was over. Okay. Secondly, compared with other periods of China's reform and opening era, this is not the most optimistic era. Actually, after 1989, I have seen in Chinese internal politics in the name of stability, dissident voices have been suppressed. 
But interestingly, this is not a, just the behavior of the Chinese government. This is also with the support of a very large portion of Chinese population. Largely because when the Chinese population were with knowledge to developments in other parts of the world, they have seen in post-communist Soviet Union, uh, Russia, and Eastern Europe, to what extent disorder, instability, had caused tremendous suffering of the population. Therefore, it's a complicated question. Not just Chinese government should be blamed for this. It's also the question of how, to what extent, the Chinese population, general population, should be mobilized to deal with this challenge. Uh, that's number two. And third, in a more recent perspective, I also see that in many parts of China, especially in southern China, actually different voices, especially dissident voices, actually emerge among intellectuals in particular. To what extent these dissident voices should be legitimized, becoming normal voices and then be channeled into justified a legitimate challenge to the government. I think that's a very big challenge of this China challenge. And personally, I do believe with the emergence of a very, very strong middle class, with emergence of interest groups that are with all kinds of considerations and concerns that are so different from those of the government, it is impossible for China to remain a country where only the dominant government voices are allowed to be legally and legitimately heard. This is what I believe. Thank you. What are questions? Yeah, I thought. Right. Let me take China's relations with our side well. I mean, contrary to what is predicted by, say, Professor Mir Sharma. China's accommodation in the rest of the world has been remarkably peaceful. China has been very successful in negotiating state-to-state -state relations. But, but China's presentation among ordinary public is less than fair, in the sense that China doesn't do very badly, doesn't do very well when it comes to public relations. So let me put it rhetorically that what PRC needs is more PR. <laughs> I, I take it. There was another question on this side as yes. well. I can agree more. Yeah, yes, thank you. We do. Yeah, please. Do that one, and then I'll let Professor Chen respond, and I'll, I'll, I'll follow up in the same way. I will get to the people on the top back here as well, I promise. Please. Um, thank you for your presentation. Um, my question is... You speak into the microphone, please. Okay, thank you. Um, you, you have said that attempts to restrain, detain, or influence China have uh, generally been um, unsuccessful. I think you were referring to uh, European or, or so-called Western countries. So my question is, um, how can these countries influence China uh, and its policymaking more effectively? Okay, thank you. I do believe, yes, China should have better PR. And this is actually a very big challenge to the Chinese, not just the two Chinese government, because interestingly, despite China entering the 21st century, a very deep and profound Chinese ethnocentrism actually is still at work somewhere and on one level. 
That's a very big question. And also, I did not mention in my, my speech because I don't have time. I do believe the victim mentality thing is, is a very big question. You cannot always feel you are a victimized member in the international community, especially with all those successes. You cannot always try to um, equate any Western powers repeatedly with the Western powers of two centuries ago. You know, that is not a healthy attitude. I think that's extremely important. And probably this is a footnote to how China can and will improve its PR. And then for this um, um, question about how outside world can and should influence China, let me make it very, very clear. I do believe outside world can and should influence China. And ch actually China has changed dramatically in many ways because of influence of outside world, especially on cultural level. You talk, you talk to the younger generation of Chinese. Their big heroes are no longer Chairman Mao or Deng Xiaoping or Lei Feng. Their bigger heroes are those familiar names in the West, including Beckham. You know, I think, and also, and also Spicy Girls. Yes. You know. <laughs> so, so, you know, that's, um, that is why, you know, Mr. Beckham was invited to perform as a Beijing Olympic closing, you know, ceremony. So that's so clear. On the other hand, it's a very I'm starting to fear for China's future. I really <laughs> On the other hand, however, it is a, an illusion to believe that outside forces are able to define and dictate the fundamental agenda of China's transformation. Because interestingly, those forces will have to work through internal forces in order to function. And I believe, actually, the longer picture probably is, a pro is, is optimistic because in another 20, 30, 40 years, when the next generation of Chinese leaders who were educated and who grew up in the atmosphere, that they know all those international terms and international phenomena much better than the old generation of revolutionary leaders. What kind, kind of China you will see at that time? Yes, please. In, yes, my T-shirt, right up there. You, yes, please. And then at the end over there afterwards, if we could speed up the handling of the microphones. Yes, please. Uh, what's your understanding of China's role in Africa? And do you see that as a, a new form of colonization? And then over there. Yes, my name is Mpapale. I come from Africa. <laughs> <laughs> this was not pre-planned, I can guarantee you. <laughs> I, I got a very straight question for you and I'd like you to give us a very straight answer, please. Are the claims of China on Tibet and Taiwan justified? The territorial claims, please. Two big questions. Yeah. Okay. Uh, let me straight forward. Yes, China's claims on Tibet and Taiwan are justified. And why? If I may further say this, say something. First of all, let me quote His Holiness Dalai Lama, whom I met twice. And let me quote him by what he told me. First, I, I would like to say a few more things about uh, Tibet because Tibetan question probably is most distorted in the West. And Tibetan story has been regarded as one of oppression and resistance that is one-sided. And what has defined 
Tibetan's relationship with China must be, you know, I do not believe that Tibet has always been part of China. You know, that is a false statement because before 1912, no Chinese dynasty has ever called itself China. However, it was during Qing time, very close relationship had been established between Tibet and, 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 and the rest part of China. And then the 1951 agreement, a 17 point agreement, was extremely important because it defined Tibetan's relationship with, in His Holiness Dalai Lama's word, the socialist motherland. And what he says, if this is a story, in addition to resistance and conquest, it is also a story of liberation and revolution. What a the, the, His Holiness Dalai Lama told me, he said, when he went to see Chairman Mao in 1954, when he went to Beijing, he was so scared, so worried, and when he returned from Beijing, he was so full of, of the hope. And so he was attracted by the revolutionary programs of, of a central government. Let us treat his words uh, more seriously. Both the Tibetan issue and Taiwan issue is a part of a larger China issue. And they can and only be resolved in connection with dealing with the China challenge. What a Tibetan today, t- Tibetans are facing today is not a China threat. It is more the challenge of modernity. And it can only be resolved by joining force of the Chinese and and Tibetans, or in His Holiness the Dalai Lama's word, the greater unity of Han and Tibetans, long live, long live, long, long live. I think that makes very, very good sense. And I find interestingly, not only the Chinese government does not treat His Holiness Dalai Lama's words seriously. Many so-called Tibetans, supporters of Tibetan cause, do not treat his words seriously. You know, I'm so greatly moved and shocked even when His Holiness told me he's so proud of being the first Chinese ever to receive the Nobel Peace Prize. Africa. (laughs) You know, I'm not an expert on Africa, but I do think if there's one region in the world that the Chinese leaders have tried to pay a lot of attention to. That indeed is Africa. You know, the great monument of China's presence in Africa remains this, I don't know if it's still in use, the Tanzanian Zambian, you know, railway. And more recently, we have heard so many things, especially in Darfur. I think probably if there's one country one major power in the world today which can provide Africa with useful and meaningful support and that probably should be from China and the question is do we really fundamentally trust the Chinese are they all with evil attentions because it seems so shocking to me as a historian when I find you know in today's world, even there are scholars who even try to justify Western cause of colonism in Africa, saying that these are not just efforts for um, conquest. These are efforts that are good for modernization. And when you find the Chinese presence 
in Africa, in one way or another, were defined as nothing but for energy resources. But in the same time, I have seen that Chinese government has allocated so much resources to Africa's past one modernity. So, take China as a normal actor. And China has its own interests to defend, but China also has a larger purpose to serve. And that is actually beyond China's own interests, and which sometimes are so compatible with the interests of the human race. I think that's a good uh, ending point for this discussion. We have we've come to the end of our time. I know there are many of you who wanted to ask questions. You will get your chance, because this is only the first of four public lectures that Professor Chen will give here at the LSE in connection with holding the Philip Roman chair. He will also be conducting a number of seminars. He will be doing regular teaching um, at the master's level here at the LSE. One of the things that we are most proud of with regard to the distinguished visitors we have or that they do not just stand up here and give big public lectures, they also contribute to the teaching of students within the school. And it's something that we are very much looking forward to seeing Professor Chen's involvement in as well. Let me once again, Professor Chen Yen, welcome you as Philip Roman Professor to the LSE, and thank you for your speech.